Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The lowest U.S. unemployment rate since I was in diapers and month after month of 200,000-plus new American jobs. That's a great thing. It also obscures underlying changes in the nature of the workforce, both in the U.S. and abroad, that will shape society for decades to come. Bain & Company calls this coming period a great transformation. A shrinking and ageing domestic workforce, the decline of a global market for labour and, you guessed it, rise of robots. This will shape things in ways that might be surprising. For instance, the state will become more, not less, active as voters demand this shift be managed. And watch out for conflict between those who've invested in this new era and those disenfranchised. Welcome to Benchmark, a show about the global economy. I'm Daniel Moss, columnist of Bloomberg Opinion in New York. And I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg News in Washington. Our guest this week is Andrew Schwedell, a partner at Bain & Company in New York. He's chair of their Macro Trends Group and co-author of the report, Labor 2030, The Collision of Demographics, Automation, and Inequality. Andrew, welcome to Benchmark. Thanks for having me, Dan and Scott. Happy to be here. Andrew, no one can accuse you of thinking small. So do you just ignore the employment report that's published the first Friday of every month? <laughs> well, we're not we're not quite glued to the uh, to the radio or to the TV to watch it, but we we do pay attention, obviously, to what happens in the near term. But we try to put it in context of bigger, longer term trends that really affect our clients, corporations, and investors' planning and investment horizons. And in every monthly number, there are germs of these long term trends. Absolutely, we see things playing through, and and the story gets clearer and clearer over time. But we think it'll still take a few years to play out. Andrew, I just have to take a step back for a second before we get into the the nitty-gritty. I've read a number of these consulting firms' reports throughout my career on big macro trends. They they really tend to be pretty dryly written, bland in their views, pretty safe in their conclusions. And and that is just not the case with this report that you guys put out. It's it's actually pretty provocative. I'm wondering, did you set out to do that, or was this uh, just kind of where you ended up after doing a thorough analysis of all the, the data and predictions that you were thinking about? Well, thanks. Thanks for the comment, first of all. We, um, you know, I don't think we try to set out to be provocative per se, but we do always ask ourselves when we see conventional wisdom coalescing in one direction, where could that be wrong? And so I think in, in all of our reports, whether it's Labor 2030, or um, a world of wash and money, which was our look at capital superabundance several years ago, and uh, spatial economics. We try to take a little bit of a perspective of where could people be wrong, and where there are some things that are surprising and maybe counterintuitive to talk about. It's a great transformation. Sounds profound, but just to be clear, we're talking about trends already observable that are going to accelerate. 
Yes. Yep. This is not something that's out there in the future. It's happening now and it will accelerate. In this case, really, we use that phrase to describe the period between now and roughly 2030. So think of this as the next 10 to 15 years and kind of a turbulent time, especially in the 20s. But it's it's all stuff that has started already and will accelerate. And when you say 20s, you mean the 2020. The 2020s, not the roaring 20s. We're calling no, this no the, great Gatsby here. Well, you know, maybe maybe echoes of that. Uh, the turbulent 20s, let's say. Can you just go over what, what the main conclusions are for our listeners who probably haven't yet read your report? Sure. So if I can try to boil it down, I, I'd say we are coming from a period that you know many people have called the great moderation. If you think about the last 40, 50 years, there were a lot of really positive developments for business, for investors. Uh, there was a lot of global growth, increasing globalization, and macro was calm. You know, that was the environment most of us grew up in and, and learned to navigate in. And that period clearly ended in 2008. And we've had this kind of choppy transition time, uh, I would say, over the last 10 years or so. And so now we're entering this phase we call the Great Transformation. And, you know, there are several things that are happening there. One is we're shifting to this new world of labor scarcity driven by demographics. Uh, and that's, you know, the, the reference you made at the start of the program. That's going to have big implications for the workforce. We're really seeing automation increase, uh, and, and that's going to reshape the economy in profound ways. We're seeing an end to this period, really, of, of capital superabundance and probably a reset, uh, so higher interest rates uh, over time. And we're seeing the decline in this globalization era. That's a cyclical pattern, by the way. This happens throughout history. And now we're entering one of those cycles where there is a retreat from globalization uh, into what we're calling kind of a post-globalization era, 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 which will have more volatility, uh, more geopolitical volatility, macroeconomic volatility. And so we can get into all of these trends, but they're going to really shift the way we think about running uh, our companies and where we invest and, and the role of the state with respect to corporate, uh, the corporate sector. Now, what's this big capital spending and investment boom that you foresee? We're used to hearing about how capital spending has underperformed and there's not enough investment in plant and machinery. How do you square that? Right. You can see the productivity everywhere except in the statistics, right? So uh, I think the capital spend boom is going to be in response to this labor shortage. So as the price of the workforce goes up, there will be more incentive for businesses to spend and automate. And the automation will become more capable, particularly in the service sector. So there's been a lot of automation for many years in the manufacturing sector. That's a small part of the economy today, certainly from an employment standpoint. And as service sector robotics really takes off in terms of capability, the cost of developing those robots and cobots uh, falls and the cost of labor goes up, it will lead to you know, large incentives for companies to automate in a significant way. Andrew, you're, you're kind of playing right into some of our favorite topics here on Benchmark. Dan and I have spent a lot of time talking about demographics, automation, and Japan as well. And, you know, this kind of strikes me that a lot of these trends that you're talking about are already underway in Japan. Did, did that strike you as all, at all as you were uh, putting together this report? Absolutely. Japan was, you know, the most demographically far down the curve market in the world. And you've seen it for many, many years in Japan, as you say. And it's not limited to the U.S. and Japan. This is you know, going to be all over Western Europe. Uh, it's even going to be in China, right? People like to talk a lot about China getting rich before they get or, or getting old before they get rich. And I think that's true. Uh, and even in China, in, in companies that have had a labor cost advantage, 
there's a big push to automation. Foxconn, the electronics manufacturer, are going to be putting in a million robots by 2020. So huge investments to be able to figure out how to deploy this technology. And just to come back to your point about, well, where's the productivity growth? Historically, when you see major advances in technology, it does take a few years before management teams really figure out how to take advantage of it and get those improvements in productivity. So we do see it coming, really, in, in especially in the next five to seven years, let's say. You know, I'm glad you mentioned China. That might strike uh, many of our general listeners as pretty strange. There has been an idea that's been prevalent in the West for a long period of time that China is this vast pool of sweatshop labor. Now, you mentioned Foxconn. Let's talk a little bit about that company and its iconic role in China's industrialization and what you think it's doing with robots is so important. Well, it's it's just part of the toolkit to continue to be cost competitive and to have a, a place at the center of global supply chains. You can't rely forever on a low cost uh, you know, wage model. That's not what the Chinese government wants to do. That's not going to promote social stability in China. So they're trying to innovate, number one. And all the China Made in 2025 initiatives are partly about how do you add more value. And they're trying to maintain a cost advantage. And automation is, is clearly going to have to be a uh, you know, big part of that. So this iPhone I've just taken out of my pocket, purchased on uh, Montague Street in Brooklyn, Foxconn had a key role in this phone, didn't it? Talk about that. Well, it had a key role, particularly in the production and assembly of the phone. It didn't really have a lot of the IP around the, the software, the customer experience. And so that's a point that's sometimes lost in the global trade debate as well. But China understands this. China wants to be able to add more of the value uh, in the content, the intellectual property. And to your point about, is it just a series of you know large pools of labor, low-cost labor, some of the most cutting-edge new economy companies in the world are in China. And I'm thinking not just of, of manufacturers like Foxconn, but certainly the technology companies, uh, Alibaba, uh, Tencent, Baidu, um, financial services companies, uh, Ping An, the global insurance company, Ant Financial, which was started by Alibaba and is now would be the eighth largest bank in the U.S. if it were a standalone bank, um, Hire. Uh, which is a, an, an appliance company. You know, they bought GE's appliance business. That's not really a new economy company, but they have one of the most cutting-edge approaches to organization and leadership in the world. So you've got this very robust corporate sector in at least the private part of the market there that is innovating at the same time as, as people maybe still think of them as just a source of low-cost labor. Andrew, let me shift gears to another important conclusion in your report. You say that over the long term, there's going to be an expansion in the role of government as a result of all these changes. You see the uh, upper class and and lower class kind of replacing what's now upper class, middle class, uh, and lower class uh, automation really uh, making high-skilled jobs in high demand. And yet uh, there's going to be a, an even further hollowing out of uh, of lower paid jobs, basically, that's going to, you know, really force some big questions on society, you know, as all this, uh, as the aging demographics happen. My, my question is, we're recording this in a week where the U.S. midterm election looms over everything. And yet, you know, over the long term, 
you know, you, you make these conclusions that seem like they're, you know, you're going to have an expansion of the government's role, regardless of, you know, whatever the short term political impact is in the U.S. or anywhere else. How, how did you arrive at this particular conclusion about the role of government? It's a, it's a great question, and I'm glad you asked it, because I want to make it clear, we're not trying to make a commentary on short-term political wins. But the broad story we see here is, you know, you've got labor scarcity leading to a rise in labor costs and wage growth. All else equal, that would reduce inequality and probably help with some of the political stability. However, just as that's really taking hold, you've got this huge wave of automation that's going to be coming. That will outright displace probably 25 to 30 percent of the jobs in the country, and it will put downward wage pressure on another 25 percent, let's say. The people who will really benefit the most from and can take advantage of the automation are the best educated, highly uh, paid people today. And so we enter this period with historically high levels of inequality and all of these trends. You know, we haven't even talked about life cycle and better health where the outcomes are also very skewed and unequal, will reinforce uh, the pressure on equality or inequality. Um, and so, you know, given that trend, I guess the final point I would say is this transition will happen very, very fast by historic standards. So waves of automation and new technology are nothing new. But if you look at previous shifts, you know, you can go back and look at the movement from the farm to the factory 100 years ago. You could look at the shift from a manufacturing economy to a service economy. We took one other example, which is a more recent and narrow one, but a sharp correction, which was the impact on the construction sector in the wake of the, the housing bust. In each of those cases, if you just look at the number of jobs that were displaced each year and you look at what we see coming in the next 10 years, this new shift is going to be twice as big and twice as fast as anything we've seen before. And the question is, can the political system handle that when you're entering that period with historically high levels of inequality? Our view is it's not really wise to count on that. And if you're a business leader today, you should expect that one way or another, there will be a more interventionist role of the state uh, in the economy. If only to keep the folks with pitchforks away from the C-suite. Well, to try to manage the transition and help uh, preserve social stability. You know, this is also playing out sounds in a period like, of... It sounds uh, like you're saying the same thing, yeah, but just yeah. in more nuanced more, language. There you go. song the johnny carson theme right hey who wrote that skip who do you think it's your buddy hi everyone i'm paul anka and i'm skip bronson and what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies you get our way a brand new show from my heart podcast where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun hear about michael buble's entrance into show business and get business insight from mark burnett find out what scares my son-in-law jason bateman and discover the bragging rights that come with beating michael jordan at golf together we know just about everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before Tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. 
Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. also talk about the possibility of a spike in interest rates as this process occurs. That really fascinates me as a student of the Federal Reserve. We've become so obsessed lately with you know, where our star is, where is the new neutral level of interest rates. And gosh, you know, at this point in the economic cycle, shouldn't rates be higher so that there's ammunition there for the next recession? You're actually saying rates are going to go considerably higher. Talk about that. Well, just to be clear, I'm talking about long-term rates, and I'm talking about a multi-year view. So Meaning I think ten-year bonds, thirty-year bonds. Yes, and 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 a trend that will play out really over call it the next three, five, seven years. In the very near term, there's likely to be a cyclical recession at some point in the next you know twelve, eighteen, maybe twenty-four months. When that happens, probably short-term rates will come back down a bit again. Uh, now, to your point, government has limited ammunition, but but there's some ammunition. And in a cooling economy, you'd expect short-term rates at least to be low. But as this automation trend plays out and there's a huge new demand for capital, one other thing is going to be happening at the same time. And that is that the supply of capital won't be growing at the same rate it has historically. And again, that comes back to demographics. So this long period of low and falling interest fewer rates. Fewer people saving for their pensions and actually living their pensions. Well, fewer people in their peak saving years. So when we look around the world, uh, in any given country, it's the, the share of the population that's called 45 to 60 or 65. That's the peak savers. When that share peaks, that's when you get maximum savings. Remember Ben Bernanke talking about a savings glut? That was the global population, you know, peaking in that, in that age segment. Well, guess what? As we continue to age, we're now coming out of that segment. Japan was the first to get there. And as you continue to age, you actually start consuming again. You have to draw down your savings. So we won't be getting this huge buildup of savings from demographics. And at the same time, we'll be getting a huge pull for those savings to fuel the investment boom. And so that's where we see those two things over time leading to a rise in rates. At the back end of that, any good investment boom is usually followed by an investment bust talked about this uh, increasing pressure on employment in the back half of the next decade. And so I, I would expect rates to come down again, maybe pretty sharply, uh, for at least for a period of time. But between now and then, there will be this rise, we believe, as, as those supply-demand trends uh, play out. Well, there's that mention of Japan again. I want to come back to Scott's question and broaden it. I mean, is Japan just a laboratory for everything right now? The, the canary in the coal mine? I mean, there's there's... I mean, not just on labor, but the phenomenon you just described, the savings. Well, labor, automation, uh, capital. You know, Japan is, has got some unique characteristics just in terms of their geopolitical situation. Um, you know, one, one, for example, immigration is obviously very contentious in many Western countries now. But in the boom years, it provided a big part of the labor force growth. Japan's never really had uh, an openness to large-scale immigration even when times were good. They're tweaking that a bit at the moment. They're starting to tweak that. They're talking about getting more women into the workforce. But there's only so many levers you can pull, which is another reason why you see them at the forefront of automation. So just to get back to this idea of the three trends which boosted 
the global labour market. Baby boomers, China and India coming online, rise of women in the workplace. Let's look at that middle one. Amid all this talk about deglobalization and talk about a new competitive relationship between the US and China, is it really appropriate to talk any more about a global labor pool? So one of the other trends we talk about when we describe the great transformation is this pullback from globalization. And that's partly you know, political, but it's partly economic as well. And some of the outcomes of this technology growth are that it allows companies to produce more closer to where the demand is. And that is going to reduce the appeal of this, you know, call it the China development model, but it was the Korean development model and the Japanese development model before that. And if you go back far enough, it was the U.S. development like model in the last the, century. Starting with the garment industry and so Right, yeah. right. So that I don't think is going to be a viable growth model anymore for these countries with large pools of cheap labor. And there's going to be too much of the value added that comes from manufacturing, that comes from local production, local distribution, more of a digital and experience-based economy. And so I think it's, it's a very fair question. You know, when we talk about a global labor market and, you know, huge free flows of labor and migration and, and, and trade, you know, not to say that that stuff goes away by any means, but it doesn't have the same kind of rapid growth and expansion that we've seen in the past. So two quick questions come from that. Number one, I was in Vietnam recently, and the story was all about China being an exporter of manufacturing labor to places like Vietnam. You seem to be calling that into some sort of question. So you're saying China was sending labor to Vietnam or they were putting capital into Vietnam to do production there? It's the latter, but described as the former. Yeah. Well, so I I think the latter uh, clearly makes sense. As China's own labor costs uh, grow and they become a, a producer of lots of capital, they're looking for opportunities to invest that. Um, so there's clearly going to be sectors where labor cost still matters a lot and where there will be opportunities for lower cost countries to produce. But at the scale and the, the kind of broad based impact on the economy that we've seen, it's going to be very hard. I like the way you sketched this from a Japanese model, Korean model, Chinese model. I guess in between there, you could have squeezed Taiwan as well. Now, some of the buzz at the moment is that, you know, Africa is going to be next and people talk about what's going on in Ethiopia. Is it too late for Africa? Has technology caught up with this model? Well, again, I think there will be individual countries. You know, Africa is many, many countries in, in different situations. And so yes, there will as we're be, often reminded that it's not a country, it's yes, a continent. Yes, there will be places where that model, you know, works well. And I think there will tend to be places where there's at least enough of a potential domestic market that it's not just export dependent growth. But, you know, if you're asking, as you look across Africa, is there a pool of labor there that can do for that region, that continent, what happened with China? In our view, the answer would be no. Andrew Shradell of Bain, thank you very much for being with us. You can find the report Labor 2030 at Bain.com or just punch that into your favorite search engine. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Benchmark will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, as well as podcast destinations such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Scott Landman. Dan, you're at Moss underscore Eco. And you can follow reports from our guest, Andrew Schwedell and his colleagues at 
Bain Insights. Benchmark is produced by Topher Fortes. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.